0: Episode 60 of Radicals and Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host, Chris Brown. Since the election of Narendra Modi in 2014, India has changed dramatically. As the world attempts to grapple with its trajectory towards authoritarianism and ethno nationalism, little attention has been paid to the linkages between Modi's India and the governments from which it has drawn inspiration as well as military and technical support. India may once have publicly condemned Zionism as a form of racism, but times have changed and the state of Israel has increasingly become a cornerstone of India's foreign policy. Looking to emulate Israel in policy and practice, the recent annexation of Kashmir increasingly resembles Israel's settler-colonial project in the occupied West Bank. The ideological and political linkages between the two states are alarming, their brands of ethno-nationalism deeply entwined. It's my great pleasure to be joined on the show this month to discuss all of this and more by Azad Issa, an award-winning journalist and author of the new book, Hostile Homelands, The New Alliance Between India and Israel. We'll be talking about the history of the shifting relationship between the two countries, India's waning commitment to the Palestinian cause and the Israeli military-industrial complex. We'll also discuss the influence of European fascism as well as Zionism on the development of the Hindu nationalist movement in the 20th century. And Azad also shares his insights on the significance of the relationship between Modi and Netanyahu and the deteriorating situation in Kashmir. Before we get underway, a quick reminder that podcast listeners can, of course, get 50% off the book on plutobooks.com. You just have to use the coupon podcast at the checkout. So without further ado, here is Azad Isa on Radicals in Conversation. Yeah, Azad, welcome to Radicals in Conversation. It's a real pleasure to have you here uh, with me on the show today. For listeners, Azad Esa's new book, Hostile Homelands, the new alliance between India and Israel, uh, is out now. It was published just a few days ago, in fact, uh, February 2023. Um, and it's a really excellent new book. I just finished reading it, and it's a really accessible eye-opening exploration of the relationship between these two countries so congratulations first of all on on writing this yeah really wonderful book perhaps we could begin by just quite simply maybe you'd like to introduce yourself to our listeners Uh, you could tell us a little bit about your professional and political background
1: hi chris Um, hi listeners thank you so much uh, for having me on the show i'm really honored to be here My name is uh, Azad Issa, I'm a a South African journalist now based in the U.S. in in New York. My family is originally from the subcontinent and we've been in South Africa since the early 1920s, so it's almost like 100 years now. I'm a senior reporter for Middle East Eye. I cover race, uh, Islamophobia, foreign policy issues. I also write about books and cinema as well. Prior to joining Middle East Eye, I was at Al Jazeera for almost eight years. I covered mostly Southern and Central Africa for the network, though I also did some reporting from Kashmir and, and elsewhere.
0: Brilliant. Yeah, thank you. So what first prompted you to write this book? Where did the idea come from and how did it develop, I suppose?
1: You see, because of my family background, I've always been sort of interested in India and you could say as a young person growing up in apartheid South Africa, I was proud you know, of the fact that India was such a leader in the non-aligned movement and clearly a friend of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. But um, ever since I was introduced to the story of Kashmir as a graduate student, I began to peel back some of the popular myths about Indian foreign policy that seemed to be built on many assumptions. And so I also noticed that there was a lot of hesitation among Indian liberals and leftists in terms of accepting that India has a very dark history, despite selling itself as a sort of like non-violent and this large democracy in the world and as the land of Gandhi and the land of uh, yoga and, and Bollywood. So when Modi became president in 2014, I watched as India and Israel became closer. And a couple of years later, they became strategic partners. But in 2019, when Modi's government revoked Kashmir's semi-autonomous status, a senior diplomat two months later said at a meeting in New York that India would um, look to replicate the Israeli model in Kashmir. As in, he meant like they would build settlements for Hindus, just as Israel has these Jewish-only settlements in the occupied West Bank. So when this happened, I was not surprised by the development, but I was so shocked by the brazenness of his comments. And I suppose I wanted to understand how a country that was perceived to have been so close to Palestine just a few decades prior, suddenly talks so openly about replicating Israel. You know, how does it happen? You know, things don't change so fast. Um, unless there's something deeper, you know, like a deeper connection, and so I, I wanted to find out, and so I pitched it to Pluto, and uh, Poor Nida has been dealing with me since.
0: <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, yeah, I think there's this kind of ostensibly quite a dramatic shift in, you know, public policy, but it's actually a much longer history of the relationship between these two countries, and um, often the private relationship and the public relationship has been very different. So where does the book begin, really? I mean, we could say that both of these countries' stories definitely involve British colonialism, right? Um, They kind of both emerged in the 1940s. So what was the original position, I guess, that that maybe the Indian National Congress sort of held over the question of Palestine, you know, in the interwar years and in the 1940s? Because as you said, there has been this dramatic shift in the relationship.
1: Yeah. The Indian National Congress saw themselves as internationalist, you know, given the importance of the subcontinent to the British Empire, they also saw an independent India as playing an important role in the world after independence. And this meant that the Indian National Congress also saw themselves as practical and, and opportunistic, you know, looking forward. So when the Ottoman Empire was defeated after World War One, and the British took over Palestine, Indian Muslims were upset about the Khilafat ending and Jerusalem being taken over by the British. So Gandhi saw this as an opportunity and he supported Indian Muslims on both issues because, you know, the Indian National Congress was was also against the British at the time. And so this became Indian National Congress policy, uh, support of the Palestinians, as well as speaking up about, you know, revitalizing the, the Ottoman Khilafat. So... Both Nehru and Gandhi saw this as a kind of anti-colonial position. And they saw Britain as being the key culprit for now this mayhem that's beginning to take place in Palestine as, as Jews from Europe begin to come in and settle into Palestine under the Zionist project. So Nehru also headed the foreign policy department of the Indian National Congress. And so this becomes the policy of that organization. And so you have in the 1930s and early 40s, the International Congress recognizing that Britain was using Palestine as an outpost of the empire. And so they keenly spoke up about it and keenly spoke up about Palestinian rights and their freedoms. But after World War II and the Holocaust, their position changed. They began to be a little bit more open to Jews coming in from Europe into Palestine
0: as you say, I suppose we witnessed this kind of change in the, the position of the Indian government towards Israel in the kind of late 40s after the war. And I think it's in September 1950 that there's a kind of recognition of the state of Israel. What changed, I suppose, in concrete terms from that point? You know, it's officially recognized the country. How does this change things, you know, diplomatically speaking, uh, in terms of any trade and so on?
1: So this is a tough question to answer, and I think in the coming years we'll find out more about this as more documents become, you know, available. You know, it appears like everything else. This decision to recognize Israel in 1950 was primarily based on self-interest and opportunity. So by 1950, it appears that Nehru and the Indian National Congress, or the, now the government, aren't as dedicated to Palestine as they first appeared. But they now have to conduct themselves in a way that allows them sort of access to the Western world, but also doesn't alienate them from the Arab world. Mm -hmm. You know, Indian foreign policy was never that original or bold in this way. It's actually after China, you know, recognizing Israel. Some months later, the Indian envoy to the Middle East, you know, has this exchange with Delhi in which it says that, I don't think we're going to experience like a backlash from the Arab states if we recognize Israel. So this is, in the end, the basis of their recognition. They just recognize Israel because they don't feel as if they're going to suffer for it. The question of Palestine is not part of the discussion. So this was the chance to keep the options open. They then create a kind of immigration office in Bombay, you know, many miles away from Delhi. Uh, and that's symbolic, of course. It's far from the seat of power. And this opens up the opportunity for back-channel talks. So in terms of what that means, the, the relationship just essentially continues under the shadows from then on.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. I mean, I think you've kind of already said the position is born out of pragmatism, really, and that sense that there won't be that backlash by opening up some diplomatic relations. I suppose what's significant then in the, the longer sort of history here is 1962 i think in the book you write how this is the moment at which the long history of arms sales from Israel to India dates from could you say a bit about that side of the relationship the trade in sort of yeah military technologies why did that start in the early 60s what was going on i suppose with India and how did that relationship then develop over the the years that followed
1: so china and india go to war in the Himalayas in 1962 So this war comes after several smaller skirmishes that take place in the intervening years and these sort of like standoffs and and disagreements over maps and uh, borders and actually uh, over India providing refuge to the Dalai Lama who fled Tibet. India kind of underestimates the Chinese and at some point during this war, which actually doesn't last that long, but they realize that they need more weapons so Nehru sends out letters to several leaders around the world, including David Ben Gurion, who writes back and offers help. So Nehru thanks him, but he also says, "Can you send those weapons in ships without the Israeli flag?" And uh, Ben Gurion refuses, and 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 so you know Nehru has no choice, and he accepts the assistance. You know, India remembers that the gesture. Interestingly. Talking about that office in Bombay, that letter actually goes through that Bombay office, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not supposed to be like a, a proper consular office in a way. Right. But it goes through that office. But um, this is a clear example for me, at least, of this Indian duplicity. You know, it writes a letter asking for help. It has no diplomatic relations, but it asks for help. It gets offered the help. And then it has sort of the gall to say, send those weapons, but don't identify yourself. <laughs> and um, Egypt gets word that India has bought weapons from Israel. And Kamal Abdel Nasser complains and says, no, you, you can't do this. And India says, OK, we'll stop. It temporarily stops, but it continues. Hmm. And thereon, it just grows. You know, it happens in 65 in the war of Pakistan and in 71 as well. And then sort of the floodgates slowly open as a result.
0: Hmm. So it's been really interesting to sort of read in the book, in this point in the relationship between the two countries, just sort of how divergent the public and the private relationship is between India and Israel. Could you maybe expand on this a little bit?
1: Yes. Um, in public, the relationship gets worse in the 1970s. But um, what's important here is that this all begins after the 67 war. You know, Israel completes an utterly comprehensive and humiliating victory over the, the Arab countries in six days. And what happens here is that India's military looks on in awe. It forces India to rethink its relationship with Israel, but it still doesn't have the confidence to go through with it in terms of, you know, normalizing ties But it is in 67, after struggling in 62 with China and then having the war with Pakistan in 65, that India starts sort of recalculating its military priorities. You know, so publicly, India via late 60s, uh, Indira Gandhi, who becomes the next prime minister, publicly, she becomes very close to the PLO and Yasser Arafat. Yasser Arafat calls her my sister, and India becomes the first non-Arab country to recognize the PLO. But privately, Indira sets up RAW, the foreign intelligence agency, and it also starts working privately with Mossad. So this then sets up a kind of it paves the way for a relationship, a deeper relationship now with India and Israel behind the scenes when it comes to the military and other kinds of tie-ups, at, you know, between these two states. And that starts in '67, and it is contradictory because there is a public posture and there's a, a private posture and then this in the 80s when india starts looking to open up its economy it then recognizes on the basis of this israeli military industrial complex you know it recognizes israel as a country that it wants to be linked with it wants to work with and it also is told you know rajiv gandhi is told that if you want to be close to the us you need to fix your relations with israel and so Israel is able to, you know, create this strong narrative in which it pushes itself, this perception that it's democratic, it's self-sufficient, it's powerful. And actually, India now, with a young population, you know, that's like hungry for work and for, for technology and for all the gadgetry of the, the modern age, you know, uh, they want to emulate that. And so this becomes sort of like entangled with each other. But it starts with that military.
0: Mm. So perhaps you could give us an overview of how this military sort of relationship develops between the two countries throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, you know, even into the noughties, because some of the statistics that you cite in the book about the scale of arms sales from Israel to India are pretty incredible. So what is this relationship achieving for both parties, uh, politically speaking?
1: So what happens in the late 80s and the early 90s with the end of the Cold War India feels that it cannot rely exclusively on Russia for its weapons. And it then looks at new avenues. And it's also um, nervous about Pakistan, which is, it's like eternal bogeyman, right? (laughs) So it looks onto Israel and it feels that it needs to sort of like up its game, essentially. And so what happens with Israel is that Israel not only is open to selling weapons to india but it's also happy to work with india in terms of assisting with developing the indian arms industry as well and this actually takes off uh, a lot more in the 2000s and you know with modi coming in as well when modi coming in he wanted to build this make in india program in which india becomes self sufficient and so India has this glorified sense of self in which it wants to become some type of empire, you know. And in doing so, it feels as if that it needs to have as many arms and be able to defend itself to essentially operate that dream of its hmm.
0: Perhaps it would be good to now move on to talking a little bit about some of the other overlaps between these two countries. You know, we can talk about Hindutva and, you know, Zionism, the links between these two ideologies. We can talk some more about the relationship between Modi and the BJP and Netanyahu's government, for instance. And of course, the parallels between, you know, Kashmir and the occupied territories. Maybe let's start by talking a little bit about Hindutva, because this is obviously something that informs the political project of Narendra Modi and the BJP. For listeners who aren't maybe familiar with the term, could you say what some of the origins of this, you know, political philosophy, for want of a better word, and what its tenets are?
1: The first half of the 20th century saw a lot of independence struggles coming to the fore, including in India. Hindutva activists were influenced by, you know, several European thinkers who saw India as kind of like the cradle of civilization. These included like William Jones and um, Max Müller. And this urged these early proponents of Hindutva to call for a kind of return to a pure India in which, you know, Hinduism was the basis of society. So Hindu nationalists argue that, you know, Hindus were the original inhabitants and that everyone else were essentially foreigners and invaders who had essentially contaminated the nation. So this becomes the narrative And this becomes the essentialized idea of Hindutva. So as a struggle for independence from British rule started, the Hindu nationalist movement then looks at Muslims as that enemy that needs to be disciplined, essentially. So they are the invader. They are the outsider. They are the community that has essentially contaminated Hindu civilization and they need to be fixed in a way. The organization that starts building this Hindu nationalist uh, supremacist ideology is called the RSS or the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, right? And they become like this hub for Hindu nationalist organizations to build around. And their aim is to create a Hindu state. And so the RSS gives birth to a youth wing, a religious wing, uh, several charitable organizations. They build educational syllabuses and they ultimately build this political wing called the BJP. And so the BJP now carries that Hindu supremacist ideology into the state, essentially. Mm.
0: Yeah, we'll definitely come on to talk a bit more about the, I suppose, the rapid rise in political fortunes that the BJP sort of experienced in the 80s and 90s. But just before we kind of move on to that, maybe, you know, it's quite interesting to read in the book the influence of, you know, Mussolini's fascism, for instance, in the the early days of that um, the development of Hindutva. And then this, you know, perhaps seeming contradiction between, you know, on the one hand, an engagement with European fascism uh, and also a sort of simultaneous admiration for the burgeoning Zionist project. So, could you maybe unpack a little bit this seeming contradiction in the position of Hindu nationalists, which, you know, on the one hand was kind of drawing on the fascist tradition and also sort of having this, yeah, position on Zionism that might seem contradictory?
1: Yeah, you know, the RSS and the Hindu nationalists. Looked to the fascist regimes, as you say, in Europe, such as Mussolini, for inspiration. RSS members went to Italy in the nineteen thirties and forties and came back to India and built institutions for young people. There were these uh, journalists who went on these like packages, you know, to report on fascism in Europe, and um, their purpose was to report on how fascism was kind of desirable way of disciplining society. And in this way it, it it harkens back to the point that Hindu nationalist thinkers felt that on one hand India had been sort of contaminated and at the same time they felt that Hindus had become weak over the centuries and they needed to be strengthened. So therefore this idea of like you know linking up with fascists to discipline the society and so they can strengthen themselves and they started copying everything they even copied the 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 brown pants the short brown pants and the socks you know and this then expanded to other places the rss formed international wings it started off actually in kenya then it went to the uk and it went to the us and as you say there was this incredible contradiction or actually it first appears as a contradiction in that you have this ideology and this movement that looks at europe and says, hey, we want to be like you, this strong, disciplined force that gets rid of the community that's causing problems or seem to be causing problems or seem to be contaminating the society. So in this way, they look at how fascist Europe wants to treat Jews, and they want to do the same to Muslims in India. And they also kind of support the fascist regime's decisions and sort of anti-Semitism and the techniques towards Jews in Europe, saying that this is possibly their best way of, like, developing their society, you know, getting back to that, like, nativist policy. On the other hand, they then looked at Zionists moving into Palestine and also lauded them as well for going into Palestine and essentially taking care of the Palestinian Muslims, on that side. And so on first look, it appears that it's a contradiction, but actually it's not a contradiction. It's about, it's about seeing a methodology, you know, it's about seeing a fascist ethno-nationalist ideology just take into a different context. And they want to essentially replicate that technique and that tactic. And so, you know, the RSS and fascist Europe, they talk to each other tremendously And at the same time, the Zionist movement in Palestine, they try to connect with Gandhi and Nehru because they see the importance of being connected with this Indian national movement that they deem to be like the more legitimate one, you know. But actually, in a strange way, it's the Hindu nationalist movement that sees Zionism for what it actually is. (laughs) And um, they want to connect increasingly so with the Zionist movement. And that takes place later.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We've kind of acknowledged that the, you know, Hindutva and the Hindu nationalist movement has a, a long history, but I suppose you can sort of pinpoint its rise in political fortunes or that of the BJP in the sort of the eighties and the nineties, and then obviously, as you've already pointed out, Narendra Modi's kind of election in twenty fourteen. So what's going on? What what accounts for the the rapid rise in the popularity of this movement and its sort of ideology at that time?
1: So the fortunes of the BJP can be traced back to the 80s when they properly adopted or re-adopted the Hindutva ideology. And uh, they essentially blamed all the ills on Muslims, essentially, and by doing so appealed to this large Hindu majority in the country. They also blamed the Congress Party, which by then was seen widely as a very corrupt and family legacy business by now and also seen as being foreign as well you know so they use these punchlines to motivate for a more nativist government you know for india and uh the, the third thing was you know they also got behind this ram temple movement you know in the late 80s whereby they wanted to destroy the babri masjid because they said that uh, the lord ram had been born in a place that's now a mosque but uh, there was previously to them a a temple and so um, that raised a lot of temperatures as well as brought a lot of support for them and um, you know this mixed with the sort of like the neoliberal discourse as well because they were also promising developments and all of that as well. Now when you get to the early 2000s the BJP pushed this idea of India shining and that uh, India was on its way to become a power. Now it didn't properly work, and they lost the election in 2004. But by 2014, you know, Modi had become a national figure by then. Part of the reason that he became a national figure is because he created or he pushed a very specific agenda in Gujarat. I guess there were three things he did. He essentially managed to build a discourse of development by working very closely with big business, so he became very close to big business, and that is, you know, reaping dividends now for for himself as well as for that big business. For instance, this Adani company that has been in the news of late. The second thing he did was that he was able to polarize society tremendously, in that uh, there was a anti-Muslim program in 2002, in which 2,000 uh, people, mostly Muslims, were killed, and um, all the evidence suggests that you know he allowed three days of mayhem to take place in Gujarat. And that essentially, by allowing that, he polarized the society and then essentially made Hindus in the state believe that he was standing up for them. And thirdly, he started grappling hold of the media, and so creating a narrative. And so by 2014 comes along, this grand narrative that he's going to develop India, like he developed Gujarat, he's going to discipline Muslims like he disciplined them in Gujarat. And he's going to create a larger narrative of this wonderful and epic and behemoth sort of like empire, you know, called India, he was going to take it to the world. That became a major selling point. So this is how in 2014, he succeeds.
0: Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you describe it in the book as a sort of a masterclass in populism, the 2014 election. So let's talk then about the relationship between Modi and Netanyahu, right? Because I suppose the character of their relationship feels like a culmination of maybe decades of developing diplomatic ties between the two countries. So, you know, what is the substantive shift that this relationship between these two leaders, uh, you know, what does it herald in terms of the strengthening relationship between the two countries, the strategic partnership that you've already alluded to, and how India is then going to go forward with regards to the Palestinian cause, the Palestinian plight?
1: Yeah, so Netanyahu and Modi meet in 2014 on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly. And this is just after Modi becomes prime minister. So as discussed briefly, the relations between the two countries have already been developing steadily over the past uh, decade or so in particular. Arms deals had moved up to a billion dollars per year. In fact, between 2000 and 2010, the deals were worth 10 billion, you know, literally one billion a year. But um, the difference was that Modi was willing to, you know, go public with this relationship. So... People tend to have this idea that this relationship between India and Israel really developed or suddenly developed under Modi. But that's not true. You know, from the 90s, it, it has been developing. And it's only a case of that it has accelerated with Modi. And even though India were buying so many arms from Israel, the previous prime minister, Manmohan Singh, like, you know, would not be seen publicly with Netanyahu. So there was the major difference. So... This meeting with with Modi and Netanyahu is also very significant because it just comes after this uh, so-called Operation Protective Edge in Gaza, you know, in 2014, in which 2,000 uh, Palestinians were killed in in this horrific bombardment. So for him to have done that at that time also showed this brazenness that was going to come. And now from Israel's side, Israel had been waiting for this moment for a very long time. And... Modi wanted to project himself as a strong man who connected India with, like, a strong and influential country, and as we had discussed, a country that had disciplined Muslims and was able to defend itself, right, and it was seen as self-reliant, all of these things that started in the 80s, which had drawn India to Israel in the first place, a strong uh, military uh, tech leader, you know, Modi had been elected on this mandate of Hindu nationalism, and so Being linked to Netanyahu matched and replicated his message as such. Now for Netanyahu, this was a huge development for him and for Israel as well because now what you had was that you had Israel being close and linked to the so-called largest democracy in the world. And that would not only give them further legitimacy, it would put to rest all of these doubts about Israel being A colonial state and all of that, when you have the leader of the so called non aligned movement, okay, even if it's like not really functional, but you have the leader of the third world being in your corner, right? It's a massive turnaround for India, which was seen as like one of the biggest critics and a major supporter of the Palestinians. So it's a big coup for both leaders. Netanyahu actually used his photographs with Modi some years later in an election campaign. They were put up on big billboards on buildings in Israel. And then this relationship basically develops even further under Trump. You know, going back to the the point about, you know, India not being that imaginative with its foreign policy, India has always been very careful not to upset the Arab world. They want to make sure that, you know, that doors open. So when Trump brings in the Abraham Accords, it gives Modi an opportunity now to strengthen the ties with Israel. I feel as if like the Abraham Accords accelerated ties between India and Israel by possibly a decade, because now it uses the Arab world as justification for being close.
0: Mm, yeah, I know. It's, it's really interesting to see the normalizing relations between you know Israel and the UAE and then other countries in the Middle East and North Africa and how that all has that effect on the, the India-Israel relationship, uh, as you say. I mean, you know, we've we've talked about some of the ways that India has sought to sort of emulate Israel um, by growing its defense sector as one, but I suppose the most obvious is how it sought to deal with Kashmir, right? And there are obvious parallels that are drawn, I guess, in the book and elsewhere uh, between the situation in Kashmir and that of the occupied Palestinian territories. So let's talk about Kashmir because the modern history of Kashmir is hugely contested, and that it holds significance to the Indian Nationalist Project. But what are some of the parallels, I suppose, between Kashmir and the Palestinians?
1: So there are several similarities. Okay, So the first one is that both Kashmir and Palestine suffered ethnic cleansing at the birth of India and Israel. So we talk about uh, Israel, we have to talk about the Nakba that saw 750,000 Palestinians expelled. When it comes to India, and we talk about uh, Kashmir, we have to talk about in Jammu, you know, 200,000 Kashmiris were killed and half a million were pushed into Pakistan. Now, that area of Pakistan is now called Pakistan-controlled Kashmir. So that's one major similarity that people seem to ignore, in a way, because there's this idea that the dispute in Kashmir came as a result of Pakistan Pathans invading Kashmir, and then India responded. But that's not what happened. There was an ethnic cleansing that took place first that resulted in in this dispute ultimately, or at least one of the reasons for this dispute, right? Um, the second point is that both have faced settler colonialism and some form of occupation since the birth of those two countries as well, India and Israel as well. In Kashmir, the Indian army came in, and India was supposed to conduct a plebiscite once facilities ended with Pakistan, and this never happened. And now for the past 30 years, you have like 700,000 troops know, one of the most militarized, if not the most militarized uh, area in the world. Another similarity is that both Kashmir and Palestine are among the earliest issues ever raised at the United Nations. And then we have to talk about methods, right? Both Kashmir and Palestine are extremely surveilled societies. It has become a lot more sophisticated in Kashmir since the early 2000s but now they mirror each other in in the way they do things in terms of the surveillance then there's also the fact that both armies and and the paramilitaries use maiming as a way of quelling and punishing dissent or protest so israelis are known for shooting palestinians in their limbs you know and so they aren't able to walk or unable to use their arms you know kashmiris have been shot in the eyes with lead-based pellets a couple of years ago, it was called uh, possibly the world's first mass blinding. You know, So you essentially uh, destroy the society in that way. Then there's also the point about civil society being intimidated and attacked routinely by both countries. So India and Israel call themselves democratic. One says it's the only democracy in the Middle East. The other one says it's the largest democracy. But they routinely intimidate, attack, criminalize civil society as well as the media. In Gaza, Israel bombs media offices, right? And in Kashmir, they, they cut off communications for days. In 2019, they cut off the, the, the communication for, for months. You know, there was no telephone, there was no internet. Uh, journalists were basically sending stories on memory sticks with people traveling on planes from Kashmir to Delhi. So imagine sending a memory stick with a story and photographs and video, sending it to Delhi, and, then, and that's how the story gets out. This is 2019. I mean, it's incredible. And then, you know, there's also the point that they both use collective punishment as a way of silencing people. Mm -hmm. Indian authorities block roads and damage the economy. Israelis control people's movements arbitrarily. Then there's also the point about not returning the bodies of uh, rebel fighters or destroying the homes of those fighters or destroying the neighborhood, basically, or people who hosted them. Then there's also like the question of resources. Uh, Israel steals Palestinian land and resources and talks about making the desert bloom. In Kashmir, the large chunks of land are taken over by the army and then the Indian government talks about environmentally friendly projects. Right. So uh, the greenwashing and the pinkwashing is also an immensely shared tactic. You know, When India revoked Kashmir's semi-autonomy, they spoke about the rights of LGBTQI, in Kashmir, you know, as a way of like trying to deflect from what they are doing there. Mm. Recently, you know, India started evicting people in Kashmir and confiscating land and property using these kind of like warped legal justifications, as they they do in Palestine. Now, what's remarkable here is that they even use the JCB bulldozers, <laughs> as they do in Palestine. Wow, yeah. Like it's it's in, it's insane. And finally, there's also you could say like the the use of local actors and politicians like puppet governments it's, so it's often all outsourced you know in palestine it's outsourced to the pa and in kashmir it's often outsourced to other kashmiris or to pro indian parties there so i guess that's the kind of a snapshot in a way if that makes any sense
0: hmm. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I mean, you do note in the book that there are other sort of parallels that could be drawn between what's going on in Kashmir uh, and not just, you know, Palestine, but, you know, perhaps with Tibet or like the situation with Western Sahara and the relationship with Morocco. So there's some, I suppose, nuances as well. But yeah, really, really fascinating parallels. What, I guess, prompted the, you've already mentioned it, but the abrogation of the region's semi-autonomy in 2019 and what's what's happened since, and and why is that something that Modi has done essentially?
1: Yeah, on your on your point about you know the fact that Kashmir and Palestine share these similarities, but you know in no way we we should say that the occupations are the same. You know, as you also say, like there are other examples of places that are similar as well. I want to emphasize that the idea is not that occupations are exactly the same, but the point that. Occupations and and settler colonial like entities, you know, they kind of use a variety of methods, and sometimes these methods change, or they're altered and they recalibrated based on you know several things. It could be budget, <laughs> it could be timing, it could be geopolitical situation. So I think that it's important to recognize the similarities, but also know that there are differences because you know all of us need to be able to recognize oppression wherever it exists you know and this is how we build sort of like solidarities and intersectional movements so you know i listed all those similarities but I, i would like to tell you like essentially maybe one difference between Kashmir and Palestine and i think it might be important because then we don't want people to look at a difference and think that it means that an occupation or settler-colonial project is not taking place. These things shouldn't distract from the overall goal, which is occupation, settler-colonialism. So, for instance, for Israel, Palestinians need to disappear. And for India, Kashmiri Muslims also need to disappear. And in both cases, the people are dispensable. But for India, when it came to Kashmir, this wasn't always the case. In the past, India tried to actually include Kashmiris and lure them into being Indian. But this didn't work right so this comes to your point or your question about 370 and 35a so the article 370 and article 35a basically gave kashmir some semblance of semi-autonomy you know they were supposed to have their own constitution they're supposed to have their own prime minister they're supposed to have their own constituent assembly but all of these things were eroded over time and in the end it didn't really matter because the place was being taken over. But the only thing legally that still existed was Article 35A, which meant that non-Kashmiris couldn't buy land. Okay? And that changed in 2019 when Modi revoked that. And so at one stage, the idea was to bring in Kashmiris into the system somehow. So that meant that unlike Palestinians, Kashmiris had more freedom of movement. You know, So they could move around Kashmir, they could go to India and they didn't need special passes. Palestinians need, you know, like Palestinians, wherever they are, there's a Jerusalem pass, you know, there's a West Bank pass, there's a Gaza, I mean, permits rather or IDs, right? And you didn't have that. But that's also changing in Kashmir now. If you talk too much in Kashmir, then you are not allowed to travel outside India anymore. You know, you put onto these no-fly lists. Now they're making these digital IDs. So if you also shown to be someone who expresses dissent, uh, you may not get a job or your family will be cast aside. If you are partaking in any type of political activity, you won't get a passport, you know. So these are differences, but they're kind of similarities in a way. It's just the tactic is a little bit different. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the goal isn't the same. And I hope that makes sense. Mm, yeah. Now, in terms of what has happened since 2019, Kashmir has become an intensely insecure place now you know, so as I mentioned, journalism and civil society has collapsed. Journalists are no-fly lists. I personally know journalists who are no-fly lists. And that means if they write something, they've got to hide their byline, right? If it's anything serious. If they want to travel out of the country, they have no way of fixing that. They on a list and that's it, essentially. And so they're stuck in no man's land. So do you actually continue writing or do you try to get off that list? Can you imagine what a ridiculous sort of conundrum that is? Uh, There's a complete crackdown on dissent and there's confusion and anxiety over land and the coming theft of the resources. You can't even have a conversation with a Kashmiri over Signal or Telegram. Like everything is watched closely. So the situation is terribly bad there. And unlike Palestine, you know, uh, foreign journalists... Uh, almost never likely to get a pass to go into Kashmir as well. So everything is very controlled.
0: Hmm. I mean, do you get the sense that there is much political will among governments to you know, hold Modi to account for what's going on now? Or do you get the sense that maybe it's in the sort of realm of you know, public awareness that there is kind of increasing critique? Yeah, how do you see the situation developing, I suppose, is my question.
1: Yeah, I think it has become absolutely clear that there's a problem in India. I think if anyone who's followed, following the news, it's very hard to not come to that conclusion, except that it's been known for you know, a long time that there's a problem there. And obviously, particularly since 2014, it's become immensely clear that India is turning into a kind of like ethnocratic state as such, in which they, there isn't much democracy, and everything is based on privileging uh, ethno-nationalist identity as such. They're going to be creating, or they have already done so, creating different tiers of citizenship in India. So you might remember that Modi was banned from the US between 2005 and 2014, I think, because of his role in Gujarat. So if that was the case then, then there's no way that they don't know what's happening now, right? Mm -hmm. So Public awareness is increasing, but political will hasn't moved an inch in fact it's probably gone backwards because of as i said earlier geopolitical and economic considerations so the west it appears wants to destroy russia right and it sort of like wants to tame china at this point i mean this is just like speculation who knows right but but for for this for this project with china in particular it needs india and it needs india as a source of cheap labor you know it needs india as a source of quite frankly, tech support even, you know, it's quite ridiculous. It's quite actually quite a colonial outreach to India in a way. And India is actually cooperating in that manner. And it's it's quite aware who's in charge. But it appears that it also has plans of its own, plans for its own future. And it sees itself as a, a great power in the coming decades. So it's being very smart, or it thinks it's being very smart by trying to keep these relationships open on all sides, you know, while it kind of like tries to develop its own economy and develop its own military might. So then it can exercise its goals when it wants to later on.
0: Mm, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was very interesting to sort of note in the book how the US has sought to ensure that India hasn't faced sanctions for continuing to buy weapons from Russia, during the war in Ukraine essentially and I suppose this speaks to those geopolitical considerations that you've just been talking about. I mean there's a huge amount to say about the book that we haven't touched on here and we won't have time to. I mean there's really interesting sections on the role of the diaspora and much more besides but I suppose perhaps by way of conclusion do you have any final you know observations or shout outs you'd like to share with our listeners that you you think is important to share at this point?
1: You know, the book was very difficult to write because, you know, it deals with so many different dimensions. You know, it deals with India, deals with Israel, it deals with Hindutva, it deals with Zionism, deals with Palestine, it deals with Kashmir, it deals with the Indian diaspora, it deals with uh, the pro-Zionist lobby in the U.S. So there's all these different dimensions I try to bring together, trying to tell the story about how these two countries are cooperating, you know, and the situation has become absolutely worse even in the period between the book being written and the book being published, you know. The connections are deepening like every day. You know, I mentioned in the book that Israel sold Haifa port in 2022, in, in, in like mid-year. That deal actually materialized just a few weeks ago. And for your listeners, um, you know, the Indian company Adani along with an Israeli firm bought the port for like 1.2 billion. It was 55% more than the second bid, you know, for the port. So that shows like it was a statement of intent, you know, uh, with a lot of backing. It is the biggest private deal undertaken by an Indian company in Israel. But what I want to say is, is it's not about the numbers or the money. When you are one of the richest men in the world, like $1.2 billion and $3.5 billion and, you know, those things don't mean anything, right? But it's a symbolism of this deal that's absolutely mind-blowing. You know, Theodore... Herzl, grandfather of Zionism, wrote about Haifa in his book about Zionism. It was immensely important back then to the Zionist imagination as a gateway to Palestine. You know, Herzl imagined that Haifa would be built up as a modern city. The second thing is that the British built that port. It built the modern port, at least, in the late 20s. And it is here at Haifa port where Jewish immigrants first came to historic Palestine and it became a major site of struggle because owning the port meant controlling the incoming resources including weapons to build that new state that they wanted to build so Haifa became a major site of ethnic cleansing of Palestinians and like tens of thousands were expelled you know Palestinians were put on boats at that port and sent to Lebanon now imagine today the indian flag flies outside Haifa port along with the israeli flag so India, through Adani, is essentially going to help build that Zionist dream all these years later. And it will accelerate normalization with the Arab world because part of this plan is to develop the city and to develop a, a rail service all the way to Saudi and to the UAE. So this is part of like some kind of like ecosystem in which the UAE, the Israel, India, United States, all kind of like invest in each other. And it becomes impossibly ludicrous to even try to disentangle this relationship because everyone now becomes involved and everyone becomes invested in the occupation. And equally important, it kind of locks in these authoritarian regimes, you know. So what chance is there for democracy also to develop in that region as well, you know. So the ecosystem is in full flight now is what I'm trying to say. And I just hope like the book like helps readers and activists and journalists, etc., to understand how we got here and ultimately what's at stake.
0: Absolutely. I think that's a great place to end. Um, It's been really fascinating talking to you today, Azad. So thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking to us about the new book. Uh, Once again, for listeners, it's called Hostile Homelands, the new alliance between India and Israel. And it's available now from plutobooks.com and all good bookshops. So Azad, thank you.
1: Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it.
0: That was Azadisa on Radicals and Conversation. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then don't forget to subscribe to the show. And of course, you can rate us and leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hostile Homelands is out now and the book is available with 50% off to podcast listeners. You just need to head over to plutobooks.com and use the coupon podcast at the checkout. We'll be back very soon with our next episode of Radicals in Conversation. But until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye.